how do we acknowledge that we're in person? Well, we could just rudely talk over yeah. each other in a <laughs> exactly. very direct way. This is Let Me Sum Up. Yes, Your it is. Regular, <laughs> thank you, Tenant. Regular deep tie of interest. No, let's not do that. <laughs> let's do that. Technically, you can talk over me at any time. Yeah, <laughs> but it's way more satisfying when I can stare you, like, in the eyes. You can see a vein in your temple throb. Yeah. So we ruin <laughs> this carefully sculpted audio experience. This is Let Me Sum Up, your regular deep dive into recent reports on climate and energy. I'm Luke Menzel, recording today from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I can report my two co-hosts are recording from exactly the same place because they're here with me in person in Melbourne. The marvellous Frankie Muscovich. Hello, Frankie. Howdy. And recreational painter of detailed fantasy-themed miniatures, Tenant Reed. G'day, Tenant. I'm actually a hologram. I'm not really here at all. <laughs> Hey, um, on this week's show, we dig into Infrastructure Victoria's report on the role of gas infrastructure in a net zero emissions economy. But last fortnight's episode caused something of a stir on Twitter and some amazing feedback from our beloved listeners. Uh, We asked them what should be in a supercharged ISP and uh, what did they say, Tenant? There was a lot of feedback. So uh, one thought from Emma was that uh, if we're broadening out what's in the ISP, we still need a a no-surprises scenario within it where we're only considering proven technologies with a track record. Emma's thinking particularly of hydrogen, and I would guess more the the more speculative use cases for hydrogen uh, than the production. But you could uh, make the same uh, point about, uh, say, mass use of vehicle-to-grid technology to help stabilise the system. Great idea. Hasn't been done at scale. Maybe have a scenario where that doesn't happen. Yeah, it would be really interesting to think through what that would look like if you completely relied on um, on technologies that are proven, that we're confident we can scale up now. It would look really different. There's a lot of, I mean, I use the phrase building castles out of clouds. There's mm-hmm. quite a lot of that in the ISP. If you don't fall back on the cloud castles, what the hell does it look like? I'm not really sure. Well, it doesn't get you to net zero. I'm yeah. pretty confident of that. Yeah. And so in the exchange with Emma, we sort of unpacked that a little bit and maybe it's the most plausible scenarios for each sector of the economy Mm. um, that are available to us. And in some places, like the building sector, there totally is technology that can be scaled up now. And in others, like hard to abate sectors, you might need to sort of build in a bit of green hydrogen and and the like to to get us there, even if there is some technological challenges to, uh, to navigate, to incorporate it into this amazing cloud castle we're all going to be living in at some point in the coming decades. The cloud castle's going to have a bit of DAC in it too. <laughs> it's direct air capture. That's the right. Sucking air through the basement and spitting out carbon dioxide-free substance. So, uh, Frankie, uh, what stood out to you? What were in the uh, the various forks of the Twitter thread that uh, we were dealing with uh, on Friday? I really enjoyed this Twitter thread, and I seized on a tweet from Tom Quinn. Yep. Shout out to Tom. 
Uh, we've known each other a long time. He's at Beyond Zero Emissions yeah. these days. Um, so glad you're a listener of this friendly pod. Uh, his suggestion was to see a combined hydrogen superpower and high electrification scenario. So I guess his uh, rationale, which is pretty sensible, in, is that the the hydrogen superpower scenario that the ISP includes assumes use of um use of hydrogen in the gas network kind of writ large and it kind of writes off the idea of electrification at the kind of scale um, that uh, I think the central scenario envisages. So he wants to see uh, those two things uh, considered alongside each other um, because also a high electrification scenario model would lead to a lot you know, a lot more rooftop solar um, being distributed as well at the sort of household and business level um, at the same time. So I think that's a a pretty valid, solid scenario. Yeah, it's totally plausible. The idea that one would be effectively decarbonising the the bulk of the Australian economy um, via electrification, but bunch of uh, hydrogen co-located with industry yeah and then an you know servicing an export market for economies where they they weren't able to produce that hydrogen mm. the kind of scale or the cost that uh, is going to see them through the transition that sort of makes sense doesn't it well which is yeah it's probably more closely aligned to where at least i would say sort of people currently speculate how things might go with green hydrogen where it you know it, it won't be involved it won't be available at such uh quantities that um you know you'd be just pumping it into the gas network like there it would still largely be reserved for those higher uses so for industrial processes um or for export yeah totally so the one that stood out for me actually i mean they were all amazing it was a really fun conversation last friday um but craig memory uh made a really interesting point around just thinking about how you deal with who pays so he's trying to he's trying to starting to think through the equity impacts of just the scale of transition and the cost of transition that we're going to be working our way through and saying popping it up a level to say you know what our task is to uh, decarbonize urgently but do that in an equitable way and there's an argument and you know a pretty strong one that you know cost recovery from customers is not necessarily going to going to get us there perhaps there needs to be a, a reliance on government on consolidated revenue to to subsidise that transition. And when you look at the history of Australia's energy Mm. system, that's kind of how we've done it in the past, right? Like, you know, our our electricity system, our gas networks, they've been built by largely state governments. Um, And then, you know, the the idea of cost recovery is actually a relatively recent innovation in uh, Australia's uh, energy governance. The heroic age of uh, big government building big stuff uh, had uh, had some pretty uh, big opponents towards its end. The Franklin Dam dispute was you know, one <laughs> manifestation of that. Uh, but it certainly did get big stuff built. Yeah. Um, and the uh, the age that we maybe at the at the twilight of now of efficiency and rationalisation of squeezing more value out of the legacy of heroic age of power number one mm. is maybe giving way to a new heroic age and maybe in 20 or 30 years uh, we'll have, you know, a new Keating-era national competition policy set of reforms, NEM Mark 3 
by that point and will be about how do we get more value out of all these pumped hydro things and uh, all these state-backed hydrogen schemes. Um, but we're, we've got a lot of building stuff between now and then. Yeah. So thanks to all of our listeners that uh, were interacting with us on Twitter and chipping in on that, that really interesting question. I think it is one that is being grappled with within government um, as well as within the group, broader group of stakeholders and advocates uh, of which we're a part. I guess we watch this space because this is a live one. Like the topic of a supercharged ISP and the kind of scenarios that are plausible is definitely going to be a subject of discussion and debate over the coming months and years. So um, shall we read a report? Absolutely. And it's going to be a, a, a jaunty little trip through a very spelt and easily uh, easily read and encompassed. Yeah, it really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs>《Gas Substitution Roadmap》has been raised so regularly on Let Me Sum Up, it has its own corner. But this week, the future of Victoria's gas network makes its way into the main show with Infrastructure Victoria's blockbuster report on the role of gas infrastructure in a net zero emissions economy. Released alongside the roadmap, this report was a key input into Victoria's thinking on the future of gas in our state and seeks to map out the various available pathways for decarbonising the gas network. Uh, Tenant, what did you think of the report? Well, we have made the hipster choice, eschewing the mainstream roadmap and going for the deeper cut of the Infrastructure Victoria lead-in paper. And can I ask whose fault is that? That is uh, the fault of friend or maybe enemy of the podcast. You could go with frenemy. Rob Murray Leach... Uh, who's, who suggested this report. It looked like it was a short, sharp 95 pages, but they were double pages. Yeah. He knew exactly what he was doing when he referred this to us. I'd be surprised if he's read it himself. I think he's sort, he's sort of sought to outsource it to us. At the very least, he has done some screenshots of some of the more exciting graphs and posted them to Twitter. Okay. <laughs> I'll allow it, but I will say it is on brand for us. It is a little bit. Um, I will put my hand up and say, there was a, a svelte forty-page report um, on the agenda, and uh, damn it, you, Luke! It was on supply <laughs> chains, and we talked a lot about supply chains last episode. And I was like, oh, I was ready samey. for the supply chain <laughs> conversation. I was so geared up for the forty. 40- Five-page report. That so we I may did be the frenemy of my own show tonight. <laughs> Just mine. I think Tennant was okay with it. So anyway, this is a thing that we read. Um, I found it very interesting. Uh, Tennant, yes. what did you think? It is very interesting. So uh, Infrastructure Victoria were asked by the Victorian government to look into what's the future of gas infrastructure in the state, given the net zero goal, given all the uh, the money that's tied up in the existing infrastructure and given all the opportunities available to use less gas or use gas differently or use different gases uh, in the future. Mm. So they've uh, provided a bunch of concrete recommendations for the Victorian government and a, a sort of a, a, a game plan or a, or a map of different activities over time and over different regions of the state. Uh, they've uh, commissioned a couple of modelling exercises to inform this, and we're going we're to talk a little bit about that. There is a 434-page modelling report underlying <laughs> this that only I have been mad enough to leap through. <laughs> 
they've got a lot of a lot of findings, uh, and they did public consultation as well, and they report on what the community had to say. So I think when I looked at this, and I had spent a lot of time merely on reading through the recommendations in detail, which is sort of the upfront bit of the report, and then when I got stuck into the modelling scenarios, I thought like I had a bit of cognitive dissonance. Like, am I? Are these modelling scenarios matching, like, is this the same report I'm reading or are these two, um, like, quite separate things? And I think what I was struggling with a little bit in the scenarios that are laid out, um, and there are six of them, no, seven of them in this this report, and they do acknowledge that in the interim report that was issued earlier on there were four scenarios that they expanded on in the final. that pretty much all of them, uh, doesn't matter um, which kind of technology mix they're modelling, result in a very large proportion of energy demand being met by renewable electricity. Yep. So effectively showing electrification in the order of 80 to what, probably between what, 75 and 90%. 75, so I'm looking at the graph now, it's 75% up to about 90, I reckon. I think yeah. you're right. With in, yeah. some sort of form of renewable gas sort of in the mix, but not very much. No, and, and whilst all the scenarios are framed around which which um, focus on a specific renewable gas and its impact is being modelled, the thing that was hitting me in the face was the amount of electrification that's sort of uh, resulting across the board in all scenarios, and yet it's not a major focus in the recommendations uh, in the upfront report. So like I think pleasingly, uh, particularly for our... Our dear friend Luke uh, here, energy efficiency is very much a focus mm. uh, in the the recommendations, which is really pleasing to see. Um, but it it doesn't go big on on electrification in the sense of recommending incentives or a fast track towards that approach. It very much takes the view that uh, we need the next decade to kind of see. Mm. Um, what the viability is like, uh, you know, for the couple of renewable gases it sees as um, potentially having a future in, in the which are green hydrogen and biogas, biogas. from uh, from waste uh, residues yeah. in, in various locations around the state. Yeah, so it basically says we'll make a call on the f- kind of final feasibility of that in the early 2030s. But until then, like the recommendations um, beyond what they have to say about um, the role of governments in uh, supporting and focusing on a just transition and having more direct mm-hmm. support involved for low-income and vulnerable households doesn't um, weigh heavily into uh, into the electrification piece, despite it being like, to me, quite a prominent um, kind of outcome of the modelled scenarios. So one of the things that's going on here is that uh, the the um, infrastructure Victoria feel like there's quite a bit of uncertainty 
about uh, how good or bad hydrogen and uh, biogas are going to turn out to be. Biogas, the issue is more that there's uh, there's limitations to how much could plausibly be produced. Yep. Uh, and they reckon the practical upper limit is in the region of the equivalent of 25% of current yep. state gas use. And there's also a cost competitiveness issue that, mm. that, that they have. We should return to that because there's some important stuff in the modelling yep. and since. Uh, but also they think that uh, like hydrogen, there's lots of uncertainties, just how easy or hard is it going to be to convert um, existing gas users to hydrogen, where's the cost going to be able to get to? But also they're conscious, uh, or they think, that with electrification, uh, the existing electricity grid's not ready mm. for really big electrification yet. Uh, a lot of investment's needed in it. Uh, and also the existing grid is pretty dirty and so the immediate benefits of electrification, they think, are, are not great. So there's a lot of do preparatory things, do studies, mm. stop making things, uh, stop locking in new gas yes. um, infrastructure, uh, do some electrification of, of more obviously beneficial or, or uh, areas where the state has um, sort of a duty of care almost around mm. low-income uh, or social housing. Um, but... Uh, Energy efficiency does the most heavy lifting in their scenarios, In e even excluding the scenario called energy efficiency scenario. Um, it makes the most sense in the near term because it's cutting costs and it's cutting emissions uh, and it's not super reliant on infrastructure or technological developments that haven't yet been built or, or proven out. Well, it's the approach that makes sense regardless of what pathway you ultimately take because of the, the task of uh, transitioning the infrastructure and there's a transition cost whether you go down an electrification pathway or whether hydrogen plays a greater role. Doing energy efficiency now has all of those obvious mm. benefits. The thing that it's a glass half full, glass half empty thing. I think you're right, Frankie. Um, like they could have called these scenarios electrification with sprinkles of ammonia, electrification <laughs> yeah. with sprinkles of green hydrogen. Like they could have all been called electrification scenarios with slightly different mixes of technology. Yeah. Yeah. And they are technology scenarios. Like there's yeah. no scenario here for um, we don't try to go for net zero yeah. or um, anything about society or global markets or whatever. It's all hydrogen's really good or ammonia's really good mm. or energy efficiency is really good. Mm. What is, how does it play out if we make that mm. different assumption about um, technology costs or relative costs of different technologies? And there's, a, yeah. there's, a, there's actually vast swathes of work that sits outside of the scope of this report. Like they just say, well, look, you know, we really don't have a good sense of the costs of transitioning just mm. to the electricity network to cope with all of this electrification. Somebody should do that. I would suggest probably that somebody could be Infrastructure Victoria <laughs> in a future report. That might be a smart thing for the government to ask it yeah. to do. The thing that I did like, and this is like my glass half full thing, is this is the first time I've seen any government entity give a timeline for making a decision around a pathway around the gas network. Yes. So the fact that they said by 2030, you need to make a call on where what we're doing yep. because if you don't make a call by then, it is implausible that we will hit net zero by 2050. And I think that's quite a significant statement. It mm. gives us a time horizon. And I read 
um, like the front loading of work on, you know, what can we do on biomethane and biogas and what can we do on supporting green hydrogen? Let's give it our best shot. Like, well, we've got eight years. It's appropriate to make those investments. It's, it's appropriate not to just simply assume that we've got all the answers right now. But in the meantime, let's do heaps of work to prepare for the electrification because that's probably what we're going to end up doing anyway. So the energy efficiency is a part of that. Thinking about those equity issues is a, is a part of that. Starting to deal with some of the skills and supply chain issues that will allow that ramping up. I guess the question is, is there actually that much uncertainty <laughs> That would that that uh, suggests that you know that cautious approach is warranted. So, I mean, to your question about what's the level of uncertainty? Like, I think if you got a bunch of buildings industry people into a room, there's probably not that much uncertainty in that cohort about where they see the future going when it comes to the the building stock. And, And there's a very clear preference and trend towards planning for electrification in that sector. Um, the other thing I would just add in at this point and, you know, the sort of framing around, um, whilst I think it's sensible to say absolutely like, you know, some technologies need time to be either proven out or not, I think, you know, your your hardcore climate folks who are, or, you know, pushing a focus on 1.5 degrees um, and the fact that the energy sector is meant to be the easy one that goes first. And if and if analyses like these are bound around the, the prospect of achieving net zero around 2050, that, that kind of flies in the face of what some of the significant authorities have mm. to say out there about which sectors of the economy can and should go further, faster, you know, and earlier than other parts of the economy. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, that, that was, that was a, a little bit in my mind as I read this as well. So there was something that I really liked about this report and there's something that I think is a very big problem for it through no real fault of the authors. The thing I liked is that it is trying to take a holistic systems-oriented view of this transition. So there's a lot of people coming at um, the future of gas from a point of view of my house, mm. uh, what is the cheapest thing to do for my house? And I get this bit of kit or that bit of kit and what are their relevant relative costs? And uh, I come to an answer and that's what we should do. But there's an awful lot that happens outside of your house uh, that supplies the uh, the energy and the, the infrastructure to carry the energy and the storage and all of that. Mm. And it's quite a tricky thing to weigh up all of those flow-throughs. And they may not have done it perfectly here, but they've had a go and that's Mm -hmm. valuable. Mm -hmm. The thing that is problematic to me uh, is that this is very much a December 2021 report. (laughs) Like that is when this was submitted to the government uh, and then it was some months later when the rest of us got to see it. And in the intervening time... Two quite big things happened. One of them was that the uh, integrated system plan that we talked about last episode was finalised, and that plan calls for, or, or sorry, expects, 
as its central scenario the pretty rapid decarbonisation of the electricity system. Uh, and so some of the assumptions in here about uh, how emissions intensive the, the, the grid is uh, mm-hmm. are, are now not representative of, of right. the central expectation. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happened was that some guy named Vladimir Putin uh, invaded some place called Ukraine and gas has gone completely burko mm-hmm. since. And so a plan that is sort of saying... Um, Let's take some no-regret steps for the remainder of this decade uh, before doing a big push next decade Mm. plays very differently when gas is now... uh, In Victoria, it is currently, as we speak, capped at $40 a gigajoule. In the other regions where it's not capped, the spot price is $50 a gigajoule or more. And when I dipped into the modelling report for this uh, and did my little search... Uh, for some key words, it's not entirely clear, but it looks like the assumptions are that uh, the supply cost of gas, not necessarily the price, but the supply cost uh, with production and uh, pipelining it is about $6.50 per gigajoule. Right. Now, they may have also been using price assumptions from the uh, gas statement of opportunities and the ISP that were probably more in the region of like $10 a gigajoule. That's that's cheap gas. Yeah. And we're facing years of apocalyptically high Mm. gas prices. Mm. Um, So acting urgently... Uh, is is pretty important. So as great as the the integrated nature of this thing is, and the fact that they've like they've got a lot like we should step through the wrecks, but mm. they have done a lot of thought about all the 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 levers open to government and the um, the sequencing of doing them. But we might need to dial everything forward uh, by as many years as we can. Or we're just going to have to resign ourselves to paying a heck of a lot of money for heating our houses and running our factories for uh, the rest of the decade. The reality of what gas prices are going to look like for at least the next few years and the fact that, as you say, the central scenario in the ISP sees us getting somewhere close to 90% (laughs) renewable uh, electricity on the grid by 2030. A couple of the central propositions in this document now no longer stack up as, you know, as it relates to like the the, the relative uh, probability or prominence of uh, having a focus on electrification in the near term. So I think that's a useful context for this. But I also really agree with your comments about this being a really thoughtful look mm. at all the different levers. Which goes to one of the other things that came out in this report, which was there was like a, a keen interest in doing that regional planning and about, mm. you know, the, the, the infrastructure. Recommendation number one. Well, indeed, yeah. the situation that exists around, you know, existing network infrastructure, particularly existing needs for different sort of uh, flavours of, of, of energy and energy infrastructure, um, because it is going to be um, a, a very, uh, a focused story uh, as we potentially move away from a interconnected gas system to one of regional networks that goes to the story around um, biomethane and, and biogas and its availability, both the feedstock for um, for biogas 
and also, you know, its co-location with industry. Like we are moving to a to a, to a world in which they're going to be um, super relevant considerations, and does require a bunch of planning to happen. Yes, very soon um, in collaboration with local communities and local industry about what those specific localized transition pathways are going to be. Like I think, you know, we can work on the assumption there is going to be some hydrogen. There's going to be some biogas and there's going to be some biomethane in the mix um that could be a really localized story um Mm. around different parts of the state Mm. um and getting down to that granular level detail i thought was a really productive disaggregation of what is a big high level debate about what pathways we're going down well what are we doing in gippsland what are we doing in the western districts what are we doing in the outer suburbs of melbourne where there's you know you know some significant sort of clusters of smaller manufacturers, you know, like they're super relevant questions. And uh, one of the things that comes across in the modelling scenarios, I mean, there are some important differences between uh, those scenarios in how much of different things gets built. One thing that's pretty consistent, though, is that the hydrogen usage is is very localised. Like mm-hmm. there's there's a little bit in some of their scenarios. There's some blending up to 10% of hydrogen in pipelines, but there's no all hydrogen pipelines. Uh, the hydrogen's made as close as possible to where it's going to be consumed. And then maybe it goes into distribution grids, maybe it's used directly by large users. Uh, so it's a it's a different picture than sometimes emerges from uh, from other sources where there's pipelines crisscrossing the country carrying hydrogen. Well, yeah. not in infrastructure Victoria's utopias. I, I got a sense reading between the lines that they were much more bullish on the idea if you're going to scale up hydrogen production, do it in particular discrete applications like yes. heavy transport and the like rather than starting to muck around with the gas network, making upgrades which might ultimately you know, just increase the sunk costs in the network that you know, it may may not be uh, the the most sensible thing to do in a context of significant uncertainty about the pathway forward. And that feeds into one of their um, a part of their recommendation is about scaling up hydrogen and doing uh, preparatory things for that. And a part of that recommendation is to do more work to consider a hydrogen target or a renewable gas target for the state. But they're really keen to say in that process that what you want to think about is a broad target uh, that is about uh, emissions outcomes or about uh, renewable gas consumption from the state as a whole and is specifically not a blending mandate Mm -hmm. uh, because they want to be open to whatever the best uses for hydrogen or biogas are in the state. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, I mean... Maybe I'm maybe I'm giving spoilers now, but the the Victorian government has signalled in its roadmap in response to this report and other input uh, that roadmap version two, the 2023 update roadmap harder, is going to consider a renewable gas target, and that's that's going to be considerably crunchier uh, as a as a policy debate than any of the things that are in the initial wave of actions that the the state government's taking in the first version of its roadmap because if there's a um, a hydrogen target or a renewable gas target um, what's it going to cost and who's going to pay for it mm. um, I, I've got a dodgy spreadsheet that could <laughs> 
opine on that, but I'm going to need to update it because uh, $50 a gigajoule natural gas is not in my spreadsheet. Victorian government, uh, you can reach Tenant at Tenant Reed on Twitter if you want to have insights into his dodgy hydrogen spreadsheet. And unlike some consultants I won't name, mine's for free. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, can we talk about the serious and welcome focus on energy efficiency. I'm here for that, Frankie. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah. So I want to um, kind of touch on, I want to say recommendations five through eight, I think. Are solid, pretty solid recommendations. Like solid chunks in there, yeah. right? So number five is basically uh, telling us that energy efficiency is an immediate no regrets um, strategy that should be rolled out at scale immediately, which is an extremely uh, welcome call out. They uh, also, and I've got to uh, call up my notes here, but they identify six key strategies um, that they're calling on. I think they call high value energy efficiency opportunities. Um, no surprise that a lot of those focus on buildings, but uh, they also tenant call up improved heat recovery and those yep. upgrades to burners and, and boilers to make sure that gas can be uh, burned efficiently. Um, in the buildings context, as, as well as I think uh, industrial, where there's low temperature applications, yes. they call up uh, heat pumps. So both air to air and you know air slash water to water heat pumps, um, and it's your greatest hits of uh, building energy efficiency interventions in uh, draft uh, draft proofing, uh, insulation. Uh, although there's some asterisks over insulation in terms of uh, cost, I, I didn't really get the um, the detail in uh, question marks over that, as well as uh, uh, switching over uh, cooking to induction and can we just call it the scale of the savings available through like what they describe as their six high priority like just no regrets no brainer options they're talking about 112 petajoules in annual gas reduction Mm -hmm. by 2040 um, or or 66 percent of gas demand with more than half contributed by the residential sector Mm -hmm. in victoria which is remarkable it's big it is big. big And for comparison, uh, the Integrated System Plan Central Scenario, as we were talking about uh, last episode, uh, projects uh, by 2030 90 petajoules of electrification and 11 petajoules of energy efficiency related to gas across the whole national electricity market. Mm. So this is considerably more ambitious than that. But in terms of decarbonisation pathways for the gas network, just... Good old-fashioned efficiency. And and it's interesting how this is framed. Like, part of this is electrification, right? But it's, elect- it's efficiency via electrification and yep. switching across that load, as we know, particularly with heat pumps, they're more efficient in their use of that primary energy. Yep. And so you get that you get that dividend of doing the fuel switching, associating that load with, uh, with renewable energy as time goes on, um, and just, you know, solving so much of the problem without having to muck around with, mm. you know, hydrogen or ammonia or any of the other things that are floating around as more complicated scenarios. Mm. Um, uh, spoiler alert, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council endorses energy efficiency as the pathway through this energy transition. You heard it here first, <laughs> Man bites dog. <laughs> 
But Frankie, there's even more recommendations. There's that... so many more. I said recommendations five through eight, and I'm just getting started. <laughs> Buckle up, guys. All right. The next one uh, that I, I was really glad to see pulled out explicitly was around a just transition. Yeah. And, and I think the imperative of, uh, of the government to have a much stronger focus and support for low-income and vulnerable households. So it specifically calls out that cohort. Uh, we've often talked about the risk in, um, you know, like the prospect of high electrification scenarios and people exiting the gas grid and, you know, effectively leaving less gas consumers on it to bear uh, to bear the network costs, uh, which would therefore increase. And, and it's a, you know, particular risk for this cohort who are often less empowered um, to make those decisions because they occupy rental housing uh, and also spend disproportionately higher amounts of their disposable income on energy costs. So the report makes some pretty strong recommendations uh, on what to do from an efficiency perspective to support low-income and vulnerable households. It specifically calls out uh, rental standards and improving the energy efficiency uh, of social housing as well. Uh, it also, I mean, it sort of calls for the immediate increase in scope and scale of existing energy efficiency programs, targeting those cohorts, noting that some do exist. And then the interesting one for me per our kind of previous conversation on electrification uh, is that they suggest that there should be a mandate for all electric appliances in new social housing to minimise energy bills. So there's sort of tacit acknowledgement here that um, in, in new housing, all electric options uh, are cheaper and perhaps will only be borne out more if we were to up upgrade the uh the assumptions around gas pricing used in uh in the modeling um they also recommend uh the government basically doing what they can um to remove uh all or, or most costs um for that cohort to electrify and move off the gas network um so i mean you know pretty pretty significant set of recommendations there to focus on a vulnerable cohort. I thought it was really great to see that uh, as a focus. And it makes sense that Victoria would, you know, be the leaders in that debate um, because uh, it's it's the most gas reliant from a housing perspective across the country. You know, uh, Victoria uses a lot more gas for heating uh, and hot water in homes than any other state. It's it's a call for some some better targeting of mm. the, even the programs that currently exist in yes. in Victoria. So yep. in other states, in South Australia, for example, they've they've got energy efficiency schemes and they've got a percentage that need to address vulnerable households, which is not something that we have mm. in Victoria in the same way. I think that there's a there's growing momentum within some of the um, some of the, the advice that's been given to the Victorian government, um, some of the some of the actions the Victorian government is taking. They can see that as we move through the next twenty years, this is going to be one of the critical success factors is bringing these parts of the community along for the journey, mm. and it's going to be really hard, and they need to start ASAP. Mm. Yep. And before we move off our focus on efficiency uh, and electrification 
uh, onto communications because I know you want to talk about that. Um, but the other recommendation I really liked in the in the detail it provides on the landscape in Victoria specifically was around removing barriers to electrification. So we we talked about the fact that the uh, infrastructure Victoria doesn't go as far as uh, suggesting. Uh, widespread uh, acceleration and incentives um, to to drive acceleration this decade um, of electrification. But what it does suggest is immediately removing uh, requirements for gas infrastructure and and gas connections in new developments. Um, you know that that currently act as barriers to all electric developments for those who want to do it. So, uh, so there's a few things um, brought up in this recommendation that uh, are super interesting, including uh, this is the first place where I've actually seen um, very kind of niche and obscure elements of the Victorian planning <laughs> system yeah. highlighted. Uh, that uh, you know until very recently. Um, resulted in, uh, you know, gas connections being viewed as required for new developments through some, um, yeah, sort of rather obscure uh, elements of uh, plumbing regulations even. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that in, it's in this recommendation they, they, they uh, encourage the Victorian government to consider by mm. 2028 uh, just, you know, phasing out gas in yep. new homes entirely. Yes. That's right. And uh, the, the earlier bit of the recommendation, the um, alter these niche uh, uh, elements of the, the planning systems and the, 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 the codes uh, so that gas is not mandatory on new, uh, new builds, uh, was actually taken up. It was one of mm. the parts of the gas roadmap that mm. directly refers back to the recommendations here in the... Uh, in the Infrastructure Victoria report. So, uh, hey, uh, a, a nerdy niche focus can get results, which uh, will comfort listeners of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought um, I thought uh, this part of the report in the recommendations did a really good job at summarising uh, the status quo in terms of where the incentives and disincentives and barriers lie and made some really common sense recommendations to remove those barriers because if it is indeed more cost effective uh, for a given like project proponent to want to pursue uh, an all-electric building development or you know or other project they shouldn't be required to connect uh, to the gas network to comply with planning provisions and that's like a very good no regrets common sense uh, change to to enact right now so uh, we round out our uh our tour of super smart energy efficiency slash electrification recommendations um, with uh, recommendation eight, invest in a statewide communication, education, training and behaviour change programs. And this is basically, for Victorians uh, with long memories, this is basically resurrecting the Black Balloons campaign. Mm. Uh, they're just proposing like mass comms, clear messages that convey the impacts from uh, inefficient energy use, uh, which was done years ago. 
uh, and is still a good idea. The the facts have shifted a bit. The the context is a bit different. Uh, but wouldn't you do need some clear messages? And uh, this uh, one hundred and eighty odd page report is not going to be. Even you, listeners of this podcast, are not a large enough cohort <laughs> to of yourselves change Victorian energy use. So a wider campaign is definitely needed. And and behaviour change to encourage, not just an awareness piece, it's like they're actually very intentional about creating a campaign with longevity yeah. that will change behaviour over time, not just, uh, you know, not just make us more well-informed, um, you know, about the the amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions being released into the atmosphere uh, when we do our stir-fry on a Friday night, you know, on a... Uh, on our on our gas heated walks, so like there's there's definitely um, I think a very intentional focus on the on the cultural shift that's required mm. here, and I really liked the fact that they called out the necessity of a long term focus and regular funding for campaigns like this, where it's not an argument you're going to win overnight. I think that the uh, the example they gave wasn't the black uh, balloons one, but they they called up another area of um, public policy in the transport accident um, commission, the tax a uh, long running campaign towards zero around. Uh, eliminating road deaths, uh, which is, uh, was run over a very long period of time and quite successfully. If you pay $40 a gigajoule for gas, you're a bloody idiot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that a commentary on your members? <laughs> if you think we ought to pay $40 a gigajoule for gas for the remainder of this decade, good luck to you. <laughs> As always, we close out our show with one more thing in which we all share something that is currently captivating our attention. And Frankie, despite you berating us for uh, our downbeat one more things in past podcast episodes, I understand you have something slightly depressing to share with us today. Well, I'm keeping us in the broad realm of gas and I'm I'm calling it Gas Crisis Corner, specifically European Gas Crisis Corner. Uh, I know we've talked a bit um, in this podcast over the last few episodes about what's happening uh, in Europe and the imperative for a lot of EU countries to diversify and move away from Russian gas as quickly as possible uh, to sanction their behaviour and the war that they're waging in Ukraine. And so, uh, Luke, you and I were in Germany recently. We heard on the ground um, from policymakers in Berlin that they were preparing for the very real possibility that come this European winter, uh, the tap might get turned off. That that you know actually they might be facing shortfalls in supply, and the government um, 
is and has been making plans on what would happen if that uh, were to eventuate and, and had said to us, um, you know, households remain the priority and, and gas would be reserved for heating homes to make sure that people would be safe um, through winter, but that uh, businesses and manufacturing that is deemed non-essential um, could could very well um, face the prospect of not having gas, uh, which effectively means they wouldn't be able to operate in in many circumstances, which is a pretty scary like mm. reality. So, I mean, my one more thing is that. Um, uh, you know, some of this uh, fear is starting to eventuate in the behavior of uh, the Russian energy company Gazprom, um, which I think on Monday has come out and said that they are halving the natural gas um, flowing through Nord Stream 1, the main pipeline um, to Germany. So that's going to be uh, operating at 20% of capacity down from 40% capacity and Gazprom is, you know, making some claims about problems with a turbine that sort of... With Canada or something Yeah, like that's that? been in Canada for repairs and, yeah. and now, you know, and, and Europe sort of said to Canada, hey, Canada, send us the bloody turbine back so they can stop pointing to that as an excuse for not sending us gas. You know, I think the, the worst of the worst in terms of what um, countries like Germany have been planning for seems as though it's starting to eventuate and that, um, you know, they are facing um, very real downturns in the amount of gas that's going to be available now and in the months leading up to winter. So I think watch this space. Um, That's going to add more urgency onto an already incredibly, um, you know, urgent environment of policy making to find alternatives to Russian gas, be that... uh, different sources of natural gas and ramping up um, their shifts uh, away from gas altogether. Dare I say, um, on the other podcast, First Fuel, like we just released an episode where you and I and Carlos Flores uh, went deep on that. So that's the second part of the bumper two-part episode that uh, we flagged last week. Do you do you believe this whole Canadian gas turbine situation? You sound somewhat sceptical. No, it's a, to- it's a total. No, it's a total furphy. Unfortunately, um, it is not possible to provide gas through pipeline at this time. Perhaps, perhaps an arrangement could be made. If only there was a way of uh, of transmitting uh, tenants' complimentary hand gestures to that ridiculous accent uh, through your phones. Honed through many readings of Eloise in, in Moscow <laughs> to my child. Classic. All right. Okay. We're sceptical of uh, Russian stories around Canadian gas turbine malfeasance. Uh, Ted, what have you got? Something more upbeat? Well, look, you couldn't get more upbeat than a rewording of Boney M's Rasputin to comment on the Ukraine-Russia gas situation, <laughs> but I'm not going to do that maybe Come in on. the show notes. Come on. Oh, you tease. Instead, I'm going to highlight a crackle of a speech that was delivered recently by Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Kennedy, uh, on on the theme of the relationship between the public service and academia, but he chose to focus on a potted history of climate policy development in Australia. And Steve Kennedy has been at the heart of that. He was uh, the uh, economics advisor in the uh, Rudd um, Prime Ministerial Office, where he 
dealt with extreme pressure with immense grace. He is a lovely guy. Uh, he was the senior public servant in charge of introducing and then repealing the carbon price. Uh, and he's been at the heart of the neg and, uh, and a lot else since. So um, very thoughtful guy, great set of remarks, really thought-provoking and some, some, some colour and context. Uh, but uh, interestingly, uh, he situates the upgraded safeguard mechanism that uh, is the new government's policy quite explicitly as a baseline and credit scheme for emissions reduction. He distinguishes it from uh, former carbon prices and, and proposals for them, but he's he's quite clear in calling this uh, an economic instrument uh, of, uh, of a kind that does put a, a price on carbon, albeit in a different way to before. So well worth having a look at that speech and we'll put it in the show notes. Mm. Fabulous. Sounds amazing. Um, and, and Luke, what is your one more thing for this week? I wanted to flag a milestone in the journey of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, which is the formal expansion of its remit uh, to cover energy efficiency and electrification. Um, this is something that sensible people on all sides of politics have thought was a good idea for some time. It has gotten caught up in argy-bargy around reg changes related to more controversial things like CCS, to name one, that were prosecuted by the by the previous government. This has now gone through as a relatively straightforward reg change, um, clarifying Arena's role moving forward, and it seems to have been a largely uncontroversial move. Um, something that uh, uh, I talk a lot about, we talk a lot about, is the fact that you know the energy innovation challenge of the 2020s is different. To what it was in the 2010s, um, you know, costs of renewables have crashed. It is much more of an integration piece. It's much more about what's going on behind the meter. If you've tuned in to any recent episodes of Let Me Sum Up, um, that you know obviously dominates our thinking. Um, thinking about how end use interacts with uh, generation is kind of the whole box and dice moving forward. And so the idea that ARENA has an explicit mandate to think about energy efficiency, and when we say energy efficiency, what we really need is energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, load shaping, all of that fun stuff, and doing that within the context of electrification means that they ha have these shackles off and can now do some really exciting stuff on the demand side. My only caveat is that they need more money. <laughs> Because they've got more stuff to do and the same budget envelope. And so we'd be very hopeful, I think, that uh, the federal government gives that some consideration in the upcoming October budget. All right. Well, uh, I have other one other one more thing, um, oh, which is that scandal. we have been trying to remember to encourage our dear listeners to do things that will help us spread the good news oh, yes, of that. Let Me Sum Up. <laughs> As you were. <laughs> Thanks, Frankie. Uh, so... We all listen to podcasts. Apparently, you listen to podcasts too. It is a thing that is regularly said that rating us on Apple Podcasts or writing a review could be helpful uh, to spread the good news of all the wonderful work we're doing here on Let Me Sum Up. Uh, Tenet, what do you think about this plan? Is it something that our listeners should do? Like and subscribe, rate and review. <laughs> it will bring this podcast to people that you like and want to bring some energy and climate policy report light into the lives of. So do it. Do it now. There's no time like the present to like, <laughs> subscribe, rate and review this podcast. 
See, what you're saying is that they should like, subscribe, rate, and review. Send this podcast to friends. Send it to, as I heard Ezra Klein say, send it to an enemy if you, <laughs> if you didn't like it. Send it to an enemy. Okay. This is going to be like one of those email chains where they have to send the podcast to 10 people to avoid a curse, is it? <laughs> Look, uh, all I have to say is that one person in suburban Melbourne failed to rate and review this podcast, and the next day <laughs> they were struck by a comet and erased from existence. So if you don't want that to be someone that you know... Then you'd, you'd better pass this podcast on to them. To 10 people. To 10, <laughs> to 10 people that you like and respect. I, this, and this, maybe deposit some Bitcoin somewhere. This, 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 this promotional push cannot possibly fail. No. <laughs> that is all we have time for on our show today. We're all on Twitter. Frankie is at... Frankie Muscovich. Tenet is at... Tenet Reed. And my handle's at Luke Menzel. And you can email us with feedback or something you want us to cover on a future episode at mailbag at linkingsumup.net. Never miss an episode by subscribing, liking, linking, all of the things in your favourite podcast app. And you can find this and all previous episodes at linkingsumup.net. But for Frankie Muscovich and Lieutenant Reed, I'm Luke Menzel. Thanks for listening and we'll speak to you soon. Very soon. Well, that sounded a little sinister, unless, actually. Unless the comet gets you first. I think this episode's going to sound a little different. <laughs> Just a little.